the um, human cost is really devastating. Fighting fentanyl. We're taking action to significantly reduce the flow of precursor chemicals and pill presses from China to the Western Hemisphere. A China connection this week. Details from the national drug czar himself, right here, live. Ethics and this week's elections. Would you vote for a compromised candidate? What the man at the top of the Ethics Commission wants you to know. Live and late breaking this week in South Florida. Good morning and welcome. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin news this morning with breaking news, a possible movement in a deal to free the hostages held in Gaza. And we know they include Israelis and Americans and people actually from two dozen countries. A tentative deal first reported in the Washington Post that a U.S. brokered plan with Israel and Hamas would free dozens of women and children held in Gaza in return for a five-day pause in fighting. Those are the headlines of what we know and for whatever details are available right now. Israel's Consul General to Florida, Maor Elbaz Starinsky, is joining us from a rally in Hollywood uh, on the release of those hostages. That rally planned even before this news was released. Good morning, Consul General. I just want to let everyone know you have been so gracious to do this kind of spontaneously with us at that rally. That's why we have a, a phone signal with you. What can you tell us about the details of what is a, a possible agreement is, is being framed like that? Thank you very much again for, for having me and for covering this horrendous uh, story throughout the past few uh, weeks. If I just may add, it's not only a rally, you can see over here I'm holding my, my motorcycle helmet and we're going to do a parade of, of motorcycles and cars uh, in support and solidarity with the Israel and of course calling to the release of the 240 This story is of course very, very grave. We about the 240 hostages that are suffering locally in the tunnel of Hamas. And this is a terrible, uh, terrible story. While, of course, uh, it is a very, very delicate uh, issue, which uh, is not right to discuss it on the media or in public in, in general. I think also that uh, uh, we, are, we are getting closer, uh, but more than that, we are determined to do whatever, whatever is needed to get this officer. Let me let me just ask you about if if this comes to pass, do you have details on who would be released? We, we're understanding women and children. Exactly how many would be released and what the pause would look like in fighting, how that differs from a ceasefire. Well, these aren't exactly that are being negotiated uh, at the moment, and and while uh, we are indeed uh, getting closer, uh, there are still a uh, few serious uh, differences. And 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 very may remind everybody, we are dealing with a very very terroristic organization. All right, it looks like. Yeah. Oh, here we go. 
happen here. Not only that we need to bridge the gap that we that we currently have, we also need to make sure that uh, uh, whatever uh, whatever agreement we do is still is implemented, and that uh, officers are uh, come back home and uh, do it. Uh, as soon as, uh, as possible. We, we will not compromise on any operational goal that we have set to this, uh, to this uh, war, uh, regardless of any uh, possible ceasefire or humanitarian relief or, or whatever you want to call it. So we let me, let me, um, let me just, uh, if I can, let me just press a little bit on what you say. The operational goals are uncompromisable. Uh, which is the elimination of the terror network and Hamas's ability to to function in Gaza. But how can I, I guess this is the big question for the last month. How can Israel accomplish that goal with minimizing the kind of civilian casualties that that right now really have world attention um, and an uproar against the Israeli operation and and in stopping for five days, would that not allow Hamas to possibly regroup, rearm? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head, uh, Lena. These are the most acute questions that we are uh, dealing with, and there are other questions. What are going to be? What is going to be the fate of the other hostages? How can you run uh, a, a war? Uh, uh, aiming at eliminating Hamas while they are hold, uh, holding 240 hostages, including babies, kids, etc., etc. These are very, very uh, uh, valid and I think maybe even unprecedented questions in, in, in wartime, certainly uh, with the uh, terroristic uh, organizations. So the answer, the answer, and again, it's. it's uh, Pause. Whatever pause we, we may have, it will help them regroup. It will help them uh, get their get their act together. And so far, our military uh, our operation is going is going as planned. We are we are moving forward with uh, dismantling the terror infrastructure for the time being in the northern part of the uh, of the Gaza Strip. We are very aware of the danger it causes both to the, to the, to the hostages that Hamas is holding, but also, of course, to the humanitarian suffering that other we, we are not blind and we are not turning uh, our eyes uh, out of it. That's why we are trying uh, to do whatever we can to relieve this, this, this uh, uh, dire situation. That's why we have allowed them to evacuate to the southern part where they are safer. That's why we are having 100 trucks a day, more than 100 trucks a day, with humanitarian uh, supplies coming into the southern part of, uh, uh, of the Gaza Street. We are carrying whatever whatever uh, action we, we, we can to make sure that no civilians, no uninvolved civilians are, uh, are uh, affected. At the same time, we do need to remember that uh, uh, the Gazans are the uh, are suffering for and foremost from the vicious uh, regime of uh, Hamas. Yeah. Hamas has taken hostage not only our 240 uh, uh, citizens, but also the two million uh, two million citizens of Gaza, and are exploiting the hospitals and the schools and the mosques and ambulances and, and whatnot. Uh, in order to carry out vicious terroristic attacks at Israel. So I think this this question or this concern should be addressed first and foremost to Hamas and to its supporter, 
But at the same time, I do understand, and I fully commit, as I've done, we are fully committed to the state of Israel, as we have done in the past, and as we will forever do, to uh, completely abide by the international law, by the international humanitarian law, by the laws of warfare, and uh, we are doing whatever we can. All right, we have a, a difficult audio situation. Um, I want to just, uh, I'm not sure, do we have the Consul General back? You do, I'm here. Oh, there you go. I'm okay, we lost, we lost your audio for a moment. Um, before I let you go, Consul General, I know this is really tough technology uh -huh. and I appreci appreciate everybody hanging in there with us. I wanna bring it home just for a moment. Last weekend, uh, after, after this program, there was a rally locally in South Beach and video emerged from that of a, a young woman with her family pushing a stroller, yelling about something about how Hitler got it right and I wonder, as Consul General of this state and that neighborhood uh, included, how, how you react to that, how you process that? Well, uh, there, are two, there, are, there are two parts to this kind of uh, question. First of all, well, third, third part is thank you for bringing it up and not taking it, uh, not trivializing it and not dismissing it. Thank you for bringing it up because it is important that there is a spot on these people uh, and in general, and that's my first point that I wanted to raise, is it, it looks as if not only in Florida, unfortunately also here in our neighborhood, in our community, but around the world and uh, around this great country, uh, it looks as, as if evil has raised its hand. Evil was just unleashed, uh, just waiting, waiting for the opportunity to, 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 to lash at or to come out against the Jews wherever, wherever they are. And it is motivated by ignorance. It is uh, motivated by radicalism. Uh, it is motivated by by, by just uh, 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 pure, pure uh, uh, bad sentiment that is indoctrinated into into in, into many people. So we we cannot tolerate that. And these people should be uh, uh, have the spotlight on, and they should really. And we will continue to do that very much. Consul General, I'm gonna let you go. It looks like the rally is starting up and we so do appreciate that you were, even with this kind of glitchy technology, um, able to be with us. I am grateful that you were able to sort of wing it with us this morning. Thank you, Glenn. You know, as we speak, uh, just back from a tour of duty in Israel, a group of Miami Beach firefighters who were there for the last two weeks backfilling the work of Israeli counterparts there who left their posts to fight on the Hamas terror front. Local 10's Trent Kelly is there, and he was there for the welcome back. Trent, great to have you with us this morning. Hey there, good morning, Glenna. Glad to be with you. You know, it really was such an emotional and warm welcome home for that group of eight Miami Beach firefighters who, as you mentioned, risked their own safety, sacrificing uh, their safety while deployed in Israel to relieve some of the first responders there who've since been called up in that country's ongoing war against Hamas. Let's take you to some video now from earlier today of that very special welcome home ceremony, which, by the way, was held here at the Miami Beach Fire Headquarters. The group of eight leaving to the region on a two-week deployment uh, two weeks ago in which they spent 
time filling in for some of the Israeli first responders who've been called into military service following the October 7th attacks. Among the eight who went overseas was Miami Beach Fire Captain Adonis Garcia, who, by the way, is not Jewish and had never even been to Israel. I asked him today what his experience was like over there and if there were any moments that really stood out to him. Take a listen. At the time we were close to the Gaza Strip, um, hearing the bombs and explosions going off. Uh, the first night we got there, going into, uh, uh, there was a rocket alert, and going into a, a bunker to uh, get away from the rocket was very, very different for me. Uh, it was just surreal at that moment. And then we had to do it multiple times. It actually reinforced my feeling of wanting to help the Israeli people. It, 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 it magnified it by 10. Um, if only all Americans could go there and see the people, how wonderful they are, how, how much they just want to live in peace. Yeah, an experience that he says will no doubt stick with him for a lifetime. Now, that welcome home ceremony today concluded with the raising of a special Israeli flag, which was given to those firefighters by some of the first responders there in Israel. Uh, Captain Garcia telling me today that obviously the most difficult part for him was being away from his family, but he says to him it was definitely worth it to help stand up for the people of Israel. And he says if he's given the choice again, he would no doubt love to go back to the region, uh, saying the Israeli people were very welcoming and very supportive of their work. For now, that is the latest live from Miami Beach. Glenna, back over to you. Trent Kelly, thanks so much. Really interesting to hear. And Israel actually, like the United States, is one of the most diverse populations of any country on Earth. Thanks for being with us. Up next, South Florida's fatal fentanyl crisis and the national moves this week to stop that scourge. The White House drug czar is right here live on This Week in South Florida. One of the most insidious dangers of fentanyl in South Florida and nationally is that it is killing people who have no idea they're consuming the illicit synthetic drug. The fentanyl crisis is a focus of local and state law enforcement, including Florida's attorney general. And on a national level this week, it was a focus on President Biden's meeting with China President Xi Jinping. We have an opportunity today to detail what that means with the White House drug czar himself. First, though, a look at the fight on the supply side. Janine Stanwood starts us off. The um, human cost is really devastating, and it's one of the reasons why we are so motivated to make sure we are doing all we can. We speak exclusively with Christy Conigallo, the number two at the Department of Homeland Security. As the department just announced, it's doubling down on efforts to fight the fentanyl epidemic. We're trying to develop intelligence where we're going after the networks of smugglers. Sad today, it's a Last spring, we went to the southern border with Mexico, where most of the drugs are arriving, to see firsthand U.S. Border Patrol agents seizing fentanyl taped to suspected smugglers' bodies. Could you imagine one side from her uh, hip all the way up to her bra, tucked underneath there? The tiny pills are sometimes stuffed in car parts, crock pots, and artwork to get through ports of entry, like here in Nogales. While traditional tools like this x-ray and drug-sniffing dogs are used every day, now these new devices are being deployed, called multi-energy portals. Which are basically a way that we can screen a car that is coming up to a checkpoint 
before it arrived at the checkpoint. This one under construction in Nogales is now complete. We're told the scanners will increase inspection significantly. 20 times more passenger vehicles, four times more cargo trucks. CBP says the goal is to get them at every port of entry in the country. We need to stop the flow of this drug, this poison. That's something that we're working on day in and day out. It really is um, a constant effort though, because smugglers, they are, they are motivated, they are agile, and we are too. Thanks to Janine Stanwood, and right here live with us today, U.S. Drug Czar Dr. Rahul Gupta, officially the White House Director of National Drug Control Policy. Dr. Gupta, so great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you. So this issue, such an issue in South Florida, there is supply and there is demand. The supply being, I suppose, people who are addicted and people who may not even know what they're taking. And then um, that's the demand side. And then the supply side, of course, the traffickers. So fill us in. Give us the headlines. Let's start very generally. What are the new initiatives that your office is handling? Certainly, you see, I think one of the important pieces is to look at this holistically. Um, President Biden's strategy for the country goes after two key drivers, which is untreated addiction, as well as the trafficking profits, the profits that come out of the drug uh, trade, basically. So when we look at the untreated addiction, we have uh, historic expansion of access to treatment, availability of naloxone or Narcan, which is the antidote now available over the counter. At the same time, we have to make supply less available and treatment more available. Part of that's making sure that, uh, you know, obviously I've been to Nogales myself, I've seen the value and the importance of these drug detection machines. Uh, and this is exactly why it's been a priority, top focus of the president to make sure that we have these machines at every ports of entry so that every vehicle that needs to be scanned for gets scanned for. But at the same time, you know, have expansion of the Custom Border Protection Agents, as well as work with our partner nations and allies, as well as countries like China, who are shipping these chemicals to Mexico to be converted into fentanyl. So let me, uh, uh, so let, let me just pick up where you are leaving off right there because you've just set up a beautiful segue into the news of the week, which is the president's meeting with President Xi of China uh, this week on the West Coast. And this was one of the huge components in what appears to be a cooperative effort uh, and, and a very sort of delicate diplomatic dance that the president is doing. But what is specifically China's role in supplying the U.S. portion of fentanyl? Well, so a lot of the chemicals that ultimately get turned into fentanyl, often in Mexico, are coming from China. A lot of the supplies like pill pressers and dye molds that may, used to make these fake or counterfeit pills are also coming from China. So China has had an outsized role in the production uh, supply chain of fentanyl and synthetic drugs. It is why this meeting and the decision to resume our counter-narcotics cooperation was so critical, because China does have the ability to clamp down on its illicit network of 
the chemical industry and transnational criminal organizations. Does China consider it illicit? Is there, is there a role to play somehow of this network in, in something beneficial to the Chinese community? So how would, you, how would you know you can trust the government's participation in this? Yeah, I think China has seen, I think for its own people, the scourge of addiction and what happens. So it, it understands that very well. The question becomes is how much uh, will they be willing to, I mean the Chinese government, uh, clamp down and apply their rules and regulations. And in fact, just last week, they've issued notice to the industry, their own industry, that they're going to be implementing rules and laws around this. We also want the Chinese government to look at what gets shipped and mislabeled to make sure that there's proper labeling when these chemicals are being shipped. And then folks know, their industry knows who they're shipping to. Sometimes they're shipped from broker to broker. And uh, that doesn't give us a lot of transparency or accountability when often it's being shipped to cartels in Mexico. So they have this ability Obviously, our relationship and restarting allows us now to work with them to make sure that they are working to be a part of the solution when the world needs leadership of China when it comes to kind of narcotics aspects. Dr. Gupta, I know you are not into like the political back and forth that goes on in Washington, but I, I do have to raise the issue with um, most Republican Party is very wary about China and the relationship and any kind of diplomatic ties, um, especially in Florida. The Republicans in Florida do a lot of work to actually freeze out the Chinese government. Do you see any kind of what, what should be a very bipartisan effort and is in the fentanyl issue? Do you see politics getting in the way of the good work that you're trying to do? I honestly don't. Uh, I think this is one area, not only is this in a part of President Biden's bipartisan unity agenda for the nation to be, defeat the opioid crisis, but this is a, uh, you know, at a time when we're so polarized in Washington. And uh, this is an area where people from all back, backgrounds and both parties come together to solve issues. And this is something that is critical to the United States, but to the whole world, that we hold China accountable for its action when it comes to illicit supply of chemicals and equipment. So I think this is one where uh, both parties can get behind. I'm a sh pretty sure that they will get a behind because historically, um, politics uh, is not one of the uh, things that, that people worry about when it comes to saving lives of Americans. Uh, and we are losing an American every five minutes around the clock. So getting help to the people, uh, the resources, as well as going after bad actors is not only good for the nation, but it's important and urgent. I think the, the uh, number I saw last was 110,000 fentanyl deaths just in the last year. Dr. Gupta, we have a, a quick break to take, but when we come back, I have a couple more questions for you. I want to take it back to the border and talk a little bit about money. So we'll see you back here in just about two minutes.
We are back with this wonderful opportunity to speak with White House Director of National Drug Control Policy, Dr. Rahul Gupta, for our purposes in TV, the drugs are uh, talking about stopping the fentanyl scourge, fentanyl deaths that South Florida really does reel from. Um, Dr. Gupta, Florida does, the state of Florida does a lot uh, in this regard, but I want to kind of pass by for you a quote from the Attorney General of Florida, Ashley Moody, who recently said, fentanyl from Mexico is flooding our country. Is, is she right? Well, I mean, look, we have had the highest numbers of seizures last year than we've ever done. We've had a lot of domestic seizures as well, as well as on the border. So the fact that we're catching more uh, well, we have to continue to work with our partners in Mexico, in Canada, in China, and other countries. So uh, the issue becomes not one of how much, but we need to go to the source and what drives these folks and go after that. You know, um, I know you in your ear could hear the uh, report that we preceded our interview with from Janine Stanwood in Nogales and all of those resources that are at the border. Um, part and parcel of the border story, of course, is migration and immigration. And if you read the tea leaves and read the polls, the immigration currently is a real Achilles heel uh, for President Biden's administration. And I know there's a lot of work going on on that, but how uh, kind of play that intersection for me. How do you weed out the cartels and the drug smugglers in real time from migrants? That's a great question. So I've been to several parts of the border, including Nogales, as you've shown. And what, when I speak to both the Custom Border Protection and, and Border uh, uh, you know, uh, Force there, as well as individuals and mayors and other elected officials, what are, you know, and the facts bear out is this, that most of the drugs that are being smuggled, even in your piece, are coming through the ports of entry. That's where more than 90% of the drugs come through. Hmm. And of course, the migration piece happens between the ports of entry. Um, but if you think about it just from a common sense, maybe a business perspective, um, the goal of these producers is to get their product across as quickly as possible to retail. That doesn't mean go through the rugged terrain of the border and while they are victimizing oftentimes migrants, also add volume to their, um, uh, you know, that is worth cargo worth thousands of dollars. So the focus should be, remain when it comes to drug smuggling and trafficking on what works and where the evidence shows us. That shows us We've got to have better technology at the ports of entry. We've got to focus at the ports of entry. And this is exactly why President Biden has made it a top priority to have drug detection machines at the ports of entry. If you ask me how much of the passenger vehicle gets scanned, historically across all administrations that are coming through the southern border, it's 2%. Can you believe that? 2%. And the president wants to make sure that 100% of every vehicle that needs to be scanned gets scanned. That's now, kind of an eye-popping number. Definitely an eye-popping number. Yeah. yeah. And um, this is the president who wants to fix it. In the, uh, Dr. Gupta, in the short time we have left together, I want to just talk about the demand side. There was the Support Act. I don't, I'm not quite sure I know what the acronym is. Essentially, it was opioid treatment support, and it expired in, um, I think, at the end of September. So there's kind of a Support Act 2.0 waiting for a, a floor vote right now. Do you expect that that will be a significant component of this? 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, look, Congress needs to act. And, uh, you know, those in Washington understand that. Support Act reauthorization is important because that's the, uh, the legal way that states are able, states like Florida and communities like South Florida are able to get the resources to people who need it desperately. And this is why the president has added and requested Congress for a supplemental billions of dollars for both border security and increasing access to treatment for people. So, you know, at the end of the day, this is about saving lives. This is about life and death. Some of these resources can be the difference between somebody making it or we're having an empty chair at dinner table, especially during the holidays. So, you know, as a physician, I feel uh, that this is critically important that Congress act to pass not just the Support Act to reauthorize, but also the president's request for supplemental because the communities that are suffering do need that assistance. Uh, we need to expand treatment. We need to get naloxone or Narcan to anyone who's, you know, having an overdose. These are important things, and they mean a lot to a lot of people because almost no family across country from the cat is not touched by this epidemic. Yeah, that's that's true. And in fact, I, we took a little sort of internal poll here, and you're so right. Um, my producer was telling me he knows two people who have died from fentanyl overdoses um, mistakenly. Heartbreaking. Um, one more question before we let you go, because there is a, a, a real trend now on social media, which is always, you know, either good or bad, depending on the user. Um, people, com commercial enterprises, illicit commercial enterprises, fishing on social media for people looking for real relief, pain relief, um, looking for, honestly, drugs or prescriptions, and targeting on social media those people as fentanyl customers. Are you aware of that? Is, is that something that you're focused on? Yes and yes. Uh, we've had, I've had high-level meetings with some of these social media companies uh, got to know what they're doing and what more they need to do. We've talked about them uh, being accountable. But at the same time, what is really happening is uh, people need to know this, which is when you go to the social media in the palm of your hand and orders what you think is a Xanax or a Oxycontin or an Adderall, the chances are six out of 10 that they will have potentially fatal dose of fentanyl. Wow. That's, that's six out of 10. And that's odds worse than playing roulette with your life. That, that is so an incredible number. And if you need help, yeah, you know, go to a provider, get your help that you need, get an appointment. Do not rely on social media to get your medications. It is just not safe at best and probably going to be fatal at worst. Wow. Dr. Rahul Gupta, the National Director of Na White House Director of National Drug Control Policy. Drugs are so much easier for uh, for us to call you. So appreciate you being on with us live from DC, and uh, definitely a topic we will be continuing to cover. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And happy holidays. You too. Thank you. And when we come back, a look at the slate of this week's runoff city elections locally through an ethical lens, a rare interview with Miami-Dade's ethics chief. That's next.
important is it to you that your elected officials are ethical people? And what does that even mean? Besides the you-know-it-when-you-see-it approach, in Miami-Dade there are defined laws that determine ethics and a commission that investigates complaints about unethical public officials. With us today, Jose Orojo, executive director of the Miami-Dade Ethics Commission in a pretty rare interview. And we are, Jose, so grateful to have you here. Thank you. I know ethics is done, the investigations behind closed doors by design, by necessity. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you're here um, and having as, as much of a transparent conversation as we can. Thank you again. So we, um, we're facing a bunch of uh, municipal elections coming up this week and in the next couple of weeks. And some of the candidates running are ethically questionable according to the county's laws and some might have been past investigations and current investigations what what should voters know so um yeah so we we do have some candidates uh, that uh, that are running for municipal election uh, municipal positions right now and they they've been the subject of past cases uh, some of them are the subjects of currently open and filed cases um, and perhaps some of them may you know maybe the subject of future cases that we really can't talk about but um, Clearly, for someone in my position, I think that you know an elected official's ethical behavior or unethical behavior should be a, a you know a central consideration for a voter in any election. So though you just said two things, now connect them for us. So if you are doing an, an ethics investigation, I mean innocent until proven guilty, right? You don't Absolutely. want to paint anybody as Absolutely. unethical who may Absolutely. not be. But how does a voter know that? And how could a voter act on that question if there's no way to know who's being investigated. So, so, so while you're under investigation, just like a criminal case, before before the actual f charges are filed, it's confidential. But once the charges are filed, I think what what a voter has is even initially, right? There, there's a very, very rich, factually rich investigation that goes on. Um, there are reports that are available. We try to push that out to the community so they know it. So, you know, if you're a voter that wants to be informed on current cases, you know, there are ways. There are public records and we push it out you know the material is there you know you just if you're the voter just needs to you know make a little effort to inform themselves on what's you know what's been produced in these investigations so you when when you and I talked earlier I sensed a great frustration that that doesn't happen why do you think that doesn't happen? So, I, I, I think that anyone that watches government or anyone that's an informed citizen realizes that you know there is um, you know perhaps you know a certain degree of lack of confidence in government, right? And so it's frustrating for someone that does my type of work or my commission's work because you know every little unethical transaction, every little transaction where, you know, where it creates an appearance of impropriety, it seems to me that it chips away a little bit at, at you know, citizens' confidence in well, government. Well, well, let's get, let's get in the weeds a little okay. bit with this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I don't want to pick on anybody, but, but, you know, don't kill the messenger. Mm -hmm. The District 1 incumbent who is now charged with a crime, Alex Diaz de la Portilla, is, um, is running. His office and his employees have been charged in ethics cases and fined go into that a little so bit we, and, and should we should we take that extrapolate that 
Well, so I'm not going to use the term extrapolate, but uh, I'll use the term should, should a citizen consider that? Yeah, I think a citizen should consider, you know, um, you know what what an elected official staff members do, right? I mean, I think I think uh, you know elected officials have some responsibility for whom they hire, and should have some responsibility, you know, for the supervision of the folks that they hire. And it's true, we have had three cases not a, that have closed out involving City of Miami employees who have been charged with ethical transgressions or violations of the ethics code. And it's not just in that elected official's office; and other, you know, there have been elected employees across the City of Miami that have been charged with similar conduct and again I think that that it should be fodder for any voter that's evaluating why he or she is voting for a candidate. Let me ask you um, you know we, we don't have a, an enormous amount of time together but there's something that goes on in certain elections um, and I'm just gonna say it out loud identity politics in South Florida is a thing uh, white black Hispanic Haitian if if your candidate is looks like you uh, it's a good chance you're gonna vote for them candidates know that and play to that in their campaign which doesn't necessarily mean the best candidate wins. It means whoever's closest and plays the identity politics card wins. Is that, is identity politics ethical? Well, I, I, let me say it this way. Identity, identity politics are, are not a violation of the county ethics code, right? Uh, I mean, our identity, our identity politics a reality in South Florida? Absolutely, anyone that's lived here long enough sees that. I mean, I'm a little hopeful Right, I'm a little hopeful that maybe some of that may be falling away. Um, I know that uh, in nonpartisan elections, for example, in the judicial elections that I follow, I think that that may be less of a factor today than it was years ago. So I'm hopeful, um, but you know, maybe one of the reasons why you might want to look to ethics investigations and, and investigative reports is that these are objective reports, and it doesn't matter whether you're Hispanic or Haitian or African American. You know, the facts are what the facts are. Facts are what the facts are. I, I pulled. One recent case, just very quickly in the minute we have left, mm -hmm. um, looks like uh, someone who was a contractor and a lobbyist who was found to have improperly lobbied um, and was fined and mm -hmm. accepted the fine. The fine was, I think, was like $500. So you did the work, you closed the case, you fined. If I'm a lobbyist making a lot of money on a contract, $500 is not much of a penalty. Does it? Does that? How does that affect what you do? So this is the way that I respond to that, and we get that criticism, you know, from time to time, or perhaps more often than, than I want to admit that. Okay, so you've gone through the process, you've been found guilty of the violation, you've been assessed a $500 fine, a $1,000 fine. Okay, so now we go on, right? So we've done our work, right? The ethics commissions have done the, our work. It seems to me that now it's incumbent upon voters, right, or business people to pick up the, you know, to pick up that product and say okay so maybe this is not you know this is something that we're going to consider when we go to you know when we go to punch our ballot right I mean you know the, it, citizens can't get away from their responsibility it seems to me to be fully informed and, and it's sad if that happens sounds like you and I and we here do a lot of the same work yes, <laughs> informing the public Jose Arojo I'm great to have you here I didn't ever think you would be publicly speaking with us so I'm thank, I feel privileged thank you very much I thank appreciate you it. thank much. you very much all right we will be right back We are back for a few minutes more with Jose Arojo, who is the executive director of the Miami-Dade Commission on Ethics. I want to go back to something we were talking about in the last break about this one in particular. I just chose, you know, a recent mm -hmm. opinion. $500 fine for a lobbyist making a lot of money on a contract is, 
you know, is it a deterrent to not do it again? Probably not. But to your point, there might be criminal charges that result from these cases. Yeah, I, I think I think you know a lot of times the focus is on an ethics case that results and successfully results for us successfully with the you know with an issuance of a letter of reprimand or with a fine and, or with costs. But you know also you know on, on a on, you know every year year and a half you know one of our cases does get referred to you know to law enforcement and those cases uh, you know are you know are investigated with law enforcement and criminal charges are filed over the last couple of years we've had elected officials that have been charged with crimes they've been removed from office um, there's a there's a you know a, a case right now that's pending that's received a lot of attention that you know that came up as an ethics case and we were able to partner with law enforcement and that case is pending so which, which one whoa whoa which one well well I mean so <laughs> the, the, yeah of course well there's a case in the city of Miami against against a former a former commissioner who's currently a candidate, and that case is pending. You know, before Alex Diaz de la Portilla. That's correct. You, you won't say the name. I just that's correct. That's yeah. correct. It's a matter of the public record. So, so you know, sometimes ethics cases, you know, do have very, very significant, um, you know, uh, you know, circumstances, you know, the pro significant consequences. You know, when they result, you know, in a criminal case and a removal from office, and you know, potentially in deprivation of uh, of liberty. So it's not always that there's just a fine. So you know, um, in that race, uh, District One for Miami is Miguel Gabella versus. Versus Alex Diaz de la Portilla, who has been suspended because of those criminal charges, should he win, and and he thinks that he will, he's actually very certain that he's going to be the next commissioner. What happens then? Well, so I mean, what happens next? And next has absolutely nothing to do with us. I mean, it, with, the ethics, with the ethics makes commission. Unless someone Correct. I mean, so we have a pending ethics complaint that's being prosecuted right now by our office, and then there's a separate criminal complaint. And I, you know, I would think that that's entirely up to the governor of the state of Florida. You know, whether whether uh, whether he would be removed again or not removed again. But before you get to the state of Florida, it's up to the citizens of District One to decide who they're going to who they're going to select for that position. You know, staying with Miami, um, we had the mayor Francis Suarez on some months ago. He's facing investigations of various sorts, um, and he made it a point to say there was an ethics investigation that was closed, uh, no charges filed, uh, and he was right about that. But the reason it was closed was not because of the content, but because of a technicality. The person who complained didn't have what's known as first-hand knowledge of the details of his complaint. Yeah, how difficult is it to get a complaint to go forward? So, so let me let me let me answer your question and make a little pitch at the same time, right? So, so yes, that's true. So, in order, if you file a third-party complaint with our agency, you have to have first-hand knowledge of the complaint, right? We can't base our complaints on speculation or innuendo because that's not fair. Report. It's not fair, right? About a news report. Well, you know, so so here's what I would say: if you file a complaint based on a news report, it may not that complaint may not go forward. But it doesn't mean that we're going to ignore it, right? I mean, you know, news reports for us are a fertile area of information. So, just because the complaint doesn't go forward doesn't mean that our investigators won't pick that up, investigate it, and try and try to you know try to accumulate the type of evidence that we would need to file an ethics complaint. So you know when a complaint gets dismissed like that, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the end of the process, right? The process could go on. So if I did a, a report, we've done reports here. Um, would you? see this news report where we would show public documents how we found this fact would that be a basis could you open an investigation on your own based on what you see so so one of the good things about the ethics commission in miami-dade county perhaps different from the state ethics commission in tallahassee is we have the ability to self-initiate reports so we can look to news reports we can look to tipsters we can look to third-party complaints whatever the source is out there if there's reliable information that we can rely upon we can self-initiate case 
and uh, and we can and we can file it. And to be sure, our investigators and all of us, you know, we all read the media and we read, you know, any 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 source of information that's out there. We're going to take a hard look at it, and that could that could be the basis for a case. Do you think South Florida, the DNA is its corruption might be so baked in that people who might otherwise blanch at an ethics breach considers it maybe something they're so accustomed to that it doesn't rise to the level of being shocking. So I'm going to defend South Florida for a second. That's what um, I usually do, but yeah, go ahead. I'm going to defend <laughs> South Florida for a second. I mean, I think that there's a certain, yeah, I, I think that there's a certain feeling in the community that it's, oh, this is just more of the usual. I don't think that that's entirely unique to South Florida. I don't think it's entirely unique to, you know, to big cities. I mean, certainly there are other big cities across the country and big states and little states. And, and you know, some of the worst cases you see coming up in small towns where everything is very, very incestuous and insular. So I don't necessarily think that it's just us here in South Florida. I think it's an issue nationally. All right. Well, you've dispensed some really good advice, and I hope um, voters are listening. And it's great to have you, Jose Arojo, and uh, keep in touch. I'll be, Thank you I'll be hounding much. you for some things. Thank you, you very know. much, ma'am. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We will be right back. Stay tuned. To watch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, scan this QR code with your phone and it takes you right where you need to be. This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And you know we love to hear your input, reactions, perspectives. Reach out on social media at Glenna WTLG everywhere you are. Thanks so much for being with us this hour. Remember, keep in touch.